Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher with the James Altucher Show, and I have a very special guest today, although I feel like I always have a very special guest. And my co-host today, Aaron Brabham. Aaron all of my guests are special, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. You know, this is something that um, I find myself kind of going on repeat mode for the Stansberry radio show that I co-host with Porter Stansberry. But the truth is, we do reach out to get the best talent that we can. And uh, But James, you have exceeded expectations yet again. Uh, the guy that you're bringing on today... I watched his documentary probably six months ago. I'm a big Netflix guy. I love documentaries, especially anything that's about growth or self-help or any of that type of junk. Uh, and I say junk as in just kidding because I love that stuff. And he has a great documentary out there. So why don't you introduce him? Yeah, it's uh, Tom Shadiak. Uh You might have heard of his name, but you've definitely heard of some of his movies, if not all of them. So, uh, obviously he did Ace Ventura, he did Liar Liar, Patch Adams, Bruce Almighty, Evan Almighty, but we're here today, we're going to talk to him about his, re- his book that's about to go into paperback, Life's Operating Manual, which is also based on his documentary called I Am, and all of this is excellent, so as usual, I highly recommend the book, else I wouldn't have him on the show, and I think that's a common theme. You know, I'm not going to have someone on the show whose works I don't like. And there's a common theme of all the guests we have on the show, which is that they reached some point in their life where they were like, I have to change. And then they, whether it was hitting bottom or getting physically hurt or going broke or something happened to them that caused them to reinvent their lives. And I'll let Tom tell his story, but it's pretty remarkable what happened to him. I mean, he went from the top of the heap movie director. And then you'll see in the interview uh, what happened after that. I mean, he's still a great movie director, but you'll see what changed in his life, what caused him to change and how he feels about it now. So it's, it's uh, an incredible story. Uh, I'm very excited to have him on the show. Yeah, it's going to be a great interview. You know, James, here's one thing that I always wonder is, uh, and, and you get tons of feedback about this. And as always, your listeners can email james at stansberryradio.com, ask James a question. Uh, so here's what I always wonder myself. Would he have gone on this journey had he not had any money? Had he not had all that success that he had before? Would he have even thought to go on this journey? Because um, I think that whole rise through the fame gave him a completely different perspective when he got sick. But it's just one of those things I always think about. No, that's a, that's a good question. And it's sort of the, the elephant in the room, really, because, you know, we all go through this 
so-called hierarchy of needs. You know, we first we need shelter, then we need you know love and attention, and you know then we need some form of achievement, and then after that uh, we go for self-actualization and kind of asking the question, who am I and why am I here on this earth and can I do good and. You know, it's great if you could get to that point, and Tom has clearly gone above and beyond uh, that point. We'll hear the story how, but would he have got? The question is, would he have gotten there if he hadn't already, you know, achieved everything he had set out to do when he began his career as a movie director? So I, I will be asking that. Um, you know, I think the answer with him, you know, who, we'll see what he says. But, you know, he comes from a family that was heavily involved in charity. His father uh, started uh, a hospital for uh, basically helping children with cancer so that they wouldn't have to pay even a dime for their care. So he comes from a family that was rooted in charity and, and forced these questions, you know, in the household as he was growing up. And I'm sure that played a big effect on him. But look, let's find out what he says. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, let's not wait anymore. Let's jump straight into the interview. This is James Altucher, back with the James Altucher Show, and I'm with guest Tom Shadiak. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Oh my gosh, I'm really thankful you're on the show. And I'll just give a tiny intro, because I think probably most people know who you are, but just in case they don't, you've uh, directed all of these movies, uh, Ace Ventura, uh, Patch Adams, The Nutty Professor, Liar Liar, Bruce Almighty, Evan Almighty... Altogether, I think it's about two billion in box office revenues. So uh, you're a successful director, and then something happened. And I'll start it off, but then Tom, I want you to kind of get into the story. You basically had a bicycle accident in, I think it was 2007, and things took off from there. Yeah. Well, I had been changing all along. You know, uh, once the money, so to speak, started rolling in. Um, uh, and the happiness didn't necessarily roll in with it, the, the, the contentment, the meaning. Um, I enjoyed being an artist. I enjoyed the freedom that uh, the success in the art world gave me. But I, I sort of was feeling the emptiness uh, of the declared promise of the American dream as I went along. And I, I literally went from a 8,000-square-foot house to a 17,000-square-foot, three-home-acre, uh, seven-acre, uh, three-home compound in Pasadena. And and you've heard the story many times from many others. Uh, uh, it, it it didn't fill that void. Um, so the bike accident. Uh, I had begun changing my life for 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 many years. Uh, you know, the money sort of started started rolling in after liar liar. Um, and, uh, and, and I want I, I want to point out that in your book Life's Operating Manual, you did something I've seen really uh, no other director do in a book. Uh, you kind of laid it out exactly how much you made per movie. So I think yeah. on, on Liar Liar, you mentioned you made something like eight million, or you know, I think well I think, well, I think Liar Liar was closer to thirty million. I guess it was Bruce Almighty. Yeah, Liar Liar was closer to five, I think. And then by the time I was at Patch Adams, it was somewhere around seven to ten. And then because of Bruce Almighty, we grossed nearly half a billion dollars at the box office, and I was a part owner of that film. It was. Thirty plus million million dollars. So yeah, it's a it's a bit um, obscene, <laughs> if you will, um, and uh, and I felt or, or not. Imbalance. I think no one no one's judging if you make money or not. Well, I, but there, there's a philosophy behind it though that I think is a, a bit toxic. You know, when an artist 
claims to be worth more, while others, uh, even on the same film set, aren't necessarily able to meet the expenses of their family and their needs. Uh, I think there's a toxic philosophy that I think we have to look at, that I certainly felt convicted to look at, uh, and how I wanted to proceed in terms of a, of a, a, a force, a voice on this planet. So uh, I, I do my business life very differently. Um, but to go back to the story that you, you, you asked me to begin, uh, the bike accident, because I had been changing, um, you know, I'd simplified my life. I'd sold the, my, my large homes and I'd started giving away more. I'd always shared, you know, uh, I, from a very generous family. My dad helped found St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which treats kids with cancer for free. So I've always been a part of that world, which knows the importance of sharing, but, I just had too much, and I began to share more and, and, and more, and, and the bike accident compelled me to talk about those changes that I was making in my life and the contentment levels which had risen along with those changes. Well, it's because you, you had this bike accident, and then you had uh, post-concussive syndrome. Like, the, the symptoms of your concussion uh, continued, and you didn't know when they were to, would end. So what, yeah. was, what was happening that year when you were experiencing this concussion? Well, it's a quite torturous condition. It, it, uh, you, you, this is, there's a reason that people, um, often, sadly, commit suicide with, when these symptoms don't go away. Uh, having a concussion for a day is, is painful enough, but post-concussion, uh, means that your symptoms linger long after the initial concussion, um, and the causative concussion. So, uh, I was five months into this and, uh, you know, you have a, there's a ringing sound in your head that won't, at least there was in mine that wouldn't go away. It's just like a computer on overload. You can't take information in. The light is too much. The sound is too much. And you just want to shut down. Um, and so I ended up literally living in a dark room for several of those months. I slept in a closet, a darkened closet. Again, just trying to allow the computer, the brain to reset. And when those symptoms didn't go away, I didn't think I was going to live. I simply did not think I was going to live. And uh, death became a motivator in my life. And, um, and I decided to make that film I Am and to talk about some of the, the principles that I had woken up to and some of the changes that I had made in my life and the effect that it had had on my life. And it gave me a context and a springboard to start a conversation about um, who we are, who we are as people and how we're moving forward and what might be broken about the vision that we have uh, for this world and how we educate and do business with each other. And I created this film, I Am. And it, with I Am, you basically, you went around to um, many of the people who had inspired you during your journey. You interviewed them. You asked them what was wrong with the world. And what did you, what, what, what kind of general sentiment did you find among these people? You interviewed people like Desmond Tutu, uh, all of these uh, spiritual leaders and, and philosophers. Yeah, well, I, it turned from a negative question. The question, what's wrong with the world, is, is, is negative in its approach. And that's how I started the film. But uh, the, the byline ended up to be, we started by asking what's wrong with the world, and we ended up discovering what's right with it. And when you sit in a room with Desmond Tutu and the likes of Howard Zinn, uh, and great scientists, uh, that are doing alternative science, like, uh, uh, um, uh, well, Noam Chomsky, of course, is a linguist. He was a participant in the film as well. Um, Lynn McTaggart is one of those alternative scientists and, and other scientists from the Institute of Noetic Science in San Francisco. I got incredibly hopeful. It's, it's, it's hard not to have an optimistic outlook when you look 
at the research that's been done, the science, the science that is being conducted about who we are, about how we're hardwired. Of course, we're told a story every day on the news that we're pre-violent and wired uh, for aggression and selfishness. And the more I talk to these researchers, uh, people like Dacker Keltner at Berkeley, uh, I couldn't be, I was optimistic. I could not be, uh, because so much evidence was surfacing about, um, uh, what more, what, what Martin Luther King would call the moral arc of the universe bending toward justice. It's bending that way because we're hardwired that way. And so we, the, the ball pushes towards justice, which is of course an expression of love. Uh, and compassion. It just pushes that way because that's who we are. And in your book, Life's Operating Manual, you get into some of the evolutionary aspects of this, of how we switched from being somewhat more peaceful to more uh, violent and what happened uh, historically to us. But I, w- I want to get back for a second to your story of the bike accident and what happened in the aftermath of after the concussion, after the symptoms of the concussion were going away. What did you suddenly do? Like you, you made huge changes in your life. Like what, what actually triggered that and what did you do? Well, again, I, I, what, it, it's not the bike accident that triggered the huge changes. Those were come, they had come beforehand and I continue to make them. I simplified my life because I realized that the complexity, uh, it, it wasn't about, uh, uh, the accumulation of the kind of wealth that we value in this society. It was an accumulation of a different kind of wealth that I was after, W-E-L-L-T-H. And so I began to share more of my resources. I gave more money away, started uh, 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 a few nonprofits, uh, helped other nonprofits, uh, began to teach in a local college, which had me engage in this conversation with young people who were able to push my uh, uh, conversation further along, edify me, encourage me. Um, I sold again much of my real estate and uh, uh, got myself, you know, um, just a simpler life. They say there's three keys to the spiritual life: simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. And uh, I, I started walking more in that path. I, I, I moved into a beautiful, it's a, a, expensive, but it's a, still a simple lifestyle, a mobile home park. Um, and uh, yeah, I lived in a thousand square foot double wide, essentially. But again, it's a beautiful mobile home park. It's expense, costs money to live here, but it's out of the paradigm. And, you know, when I did this, my friends, um, you know, and, and some of my advisors thought I'd lost it. And I personally felt like that I'd found it, you know. Uh, did, did, uh, did anyone kind of drop you from their lives? Because I'll tell you my, my own experience when I had a similar type of transition, I had both friends and family completely uh, drop me from, from their lives. I think there was a lot of whispering about me. Um, and it, I think it still goes on. Um, they didn't necessarily drop me like I'll never talk to that guy again. Um, but I, I had people I do, say that actually. Is that right? Yes. Um, well, I, they could have been much a friend, much friends anyway, right? They, they, that could, they, that they, could they, be. That's probably yeah, what it turned yeah. out to be. Yeah. So it's probably a, 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 not a drop, but an ad in terms of a quality for you. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, look. What I, the way I live and the things that I was calling into question, um, can appear to some as a threat to their way of life. You said it earlier, this is not a philosophy that's judgmental. I don't want it to be. I don't judge the path of another. 
um, who hasn't uh, felt the same things that I've felt or hasn't called into question things that I've called into question. Everybody has a path, and I respect the, the path of others, even when it's very different than my own. Uh, but, look, I am outside the box, very outside the box. And Well, even well though- just going from a 17,000-square-foot, uh, you know, set of homes to a mobile home. Like tonight, are you going back to a mobile home to sleep? Like that's definitely a big transition. Yeah, but it's, it's not what you think. It's a, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a modest space in terms of size. It's not what, you know, many people that are quote-unquote successful economically uh, go home to. But I go home to everything I need. Um, you know, I really don't push a gospel of austerity. Uh, I push a gospel of how much do you need to lead a life that is meaningful, purposeful, joyful. You know, I don't want people to walk around um, in, in a self-flagellatory state, you know, in, in that state of, quote, sacrifice. You find that when you simplify and you just take what you need and you just give yourself what you need, you find there's space for so many other things. And and so uh, uh, it, it's not a life where you go, you would walk into and say, wow, uh, you know, I've had Oprah's camera crew over here. And they went, this is nice. It is nice. Again, it's not a 40,000 square foot house, but it it's a thousand square foot or 1,500 square feet. And it's fine. It's plenty, you know. So, um, so in your book, Life's Operating Manual, you have a quote, which I really like. We don't become happy by focusing on happiness, by pursuing it. We focus instead on what is true, what is good, what is right, and happiness follows. And you basically mentioned that you didn't make this transition in order to, specifically with the goal in mind to become happy. But what happened is, is that you made this transition and you started to feel this, these immense feelings of joy and, and comfort and happiness and so on. Uh, I mean, what, what would you suggest to somebody? I mean, happiness is sort of a weird word to define, just like success is. Like, you can either define it from this internal part of yourself or the, with the external definitions we are all taught. Like, when, you're say, when you say happiness, what do you mean? Uh, I prefer the word contentment because contentment is rooted in the word content and content's what's on the inside. Happiness can can be traced to the word happenstance, which is the occurrences on the outside. Uh, it's all a matter matter of how you define either word, and and uh, I think the idea of happiness is rooted in what we would call well-being, and well-being can mean physically. How is my physical health? Now, how's my mental state? Do I have well-being in terms of my my uh, work life? Uh, am I am I uh, 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 serving something greater than myself, which we know makes people what we call happier? There's a study now called positive psychology. Uh, we used to study only the, the negative people that were depressed or quote unquote sick. And uh, smartly, scientists came along and said, "Well, why don't we study what makes us well and thrive?" And and that's where this field came along called positive psychology. I have a friend in the film, Dacker Keltner from Berkeley who has been studying this for years and all the things that you already intuit make uh, for a meaningful life a joy-filled life are what we're finding in positive psychology uh, so the number one thing that makes people quote unquote whether you use the word happy or content or in the state of well-being the number one thing is positive relationships when you have strong
strong, positive relationships in your life, whether it's a family or a strong friendship circle or both, you report much stronger happiness levels and outcomes than those who are isolated. That already tells you who we are. When we isolate, that's the worst thing you can do to a person is put them in solitary confinement. I just went through an illness. I had the flu. And it was a form of solitary confinement because I didn't want to get any of my friends sick. And it was a kind of mini torture because we are so hardwired to need each other and to be there for each other uh, that when that is pulled away, uh, we literally start to die and we start to lose our physical health. So the number one thing is relationships. Uh, then one of the next most important things is to serve a cause greater than yourself. Again, this idea of connection. So you're not just working for yourself, whatever it is you're doing, uh, but you're working for your family, for the well-being of your children, your spouse, uh, your community. Those things, again, bring us a sense of wellness, purpose, meaning, and value um, that really lifts the human spirit and the human psychology, if you will. Um, so I experienced all those things, if you will, by accident, because I'd done the accumulation thing, and that didn't work. And then I started to say, well, I, I see the inequity around me. I don't want to, to, to just talk about a world that's filled with inequity. I, I want to do something about it. And I am the definition of the inequity in the world. So I want to start to be more equitable. So I would share more of my resources, help causes, get involved in causes, and again, that brought me a sense of purpose, a sense of community, a meaning. Uh, when I taught, I've taught for free um, uh, for about uh, almost going on a decade now at the college level and the high school level. And there's a meaning there. There's an exchange there. I have something to offer students in terms of a perspective and experience, and they offer me uh, uh, as much in terms of, uh, of their perspectives and their enthusiasm, and they give me such hope. But that, again lifted me it lifted me you know so it's it's it it really isn't complicated i think we all know but we get we get carried away by those external symbols the 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 drone of the television that shows us a certain kind of car um the the the, the magazine articles the uh the, the the media that tells us that the person that has this much wealth uh, a billionaire that's who we're going to shine the light on and because you don't have the light shined on you you're not successful those things are pulling us away from who we are and and it seems like those values really have in, increased in our lives in, in both the education system, in the media, we digest, you know, kind of this sort of gossip or celebrity culture. Uh, all of these things have kind of been on the rise for the past several decades. Uh, you know, the, the value of, of, of money in our lives and, and the disparity between, you know, the top 0.001% and the bottom 80%. I would also, though, say that, uh, the appearance may be that, but I think that that there is this groundswell of reaction to that very phenomenon uh, that is again pointing out the things that are superficial in life. There's a gr- and the inequity that we see around us. There's a groundswell that that hasn't quite coalesced yet. Uh, um, you, you saw it with the Occupy movement a little bit, although it had, I think, a, a bit of anger to it, and it was against something as opposed to being as much for something as it needed to be. But there was something there. 
Um, and you see it now in all these service organizations that are rising up at a rate that has never been seen in history. There's two to three million that they know of, and even more uh, they, 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 they theorize that they haven't seen or counted. Uh, but there's millions and millions of people and these service organizations that are meeting that need of inequity, that are starting to rise up and say, I want to live for something different. This millennial generation, which many people call selfish and has a, has a low attention span, there's some incredibly positive things about this generation. They have been the first generation to list as their priority serving. So the number one organization that they want to work for is the one I mentioned my father helped found that my brother runs now, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which treats kids with cancer for free. They find such meaning in that. That's the number one organization. It's an $800 million organization a year because people are that generous. They want to give to kids who are being healed and to research. Uh, but this generation has identified not just that organization, but the whole idea of serving as their priority. And so, so, that we've never seen before. So there is always a counter energy. It's like it's like what Gandhi said. You know, hate can rise up for a time, but think about it. It always loses. Love always overcomes it. Always. I, I wonder if this is related to what you were starting to discuss in the book with with evolution. And you mentioned how how essentially uh, the way that wheat, and I'm going to put it in a different way, but the way that wheat. And agriculture domesticated humans. You know, we used to be these uh, nomadic tribesmen, and we wouldn't necessarily get into huge conflict over areas. But once we had to store the goods of our wheat production, suddenly wars would develop, and kingdoms would go to war with each other to protect their turf. And this created this enormous violence in the world that lasted for millennia. But I wonder if evolution is also moving towards unification. So. Uh, civil, you know, cities turned into states, turned into kingdoms, turned into empires, but now we're globalizing and everything's sort of coming together. And the only way to do that is through some sort of cooperation. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Uh, if you look at the roots of history, the history of poverty, now by poverty, that's, uh, let's define it as when one person has much more than they need and can meet their needs ad infinitum, and a person within an arm's reach can't, and they don't have enough to feed not maybe not only themselves but their family, etc. And where did that start in history? And it started right around the time that you just identified, which is when we discovered agriculture and we were able to store things. So the whole tribe may have gone hungry when we were hunters and gatherers for 165,000 years of our history. The vast majority of our history, we, were, we didn't have refrigeration. We didn't have storage capabilities. It hadn't been invented yet. It's only been inside of 10,000 years. And so if the whole tribe, if there was no food, the whole tribe would go hungry, not just one person, not just two people. And and once we began to store and found the ability and the means and the technologies uh, to, 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 to amass, then we started to say, well, that's mine, and I work, I work that's mine, I'm the, I'm the better hunter, I'm the better gatherer, these are all mine, and you don't get any, and we began to lock up the food, and that's where... It, 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 we divided against each other. You know, the word devil, if you, if you look up diabolene, it means to break apart, really to essentially to divide. And we started not seeing us as a family, right? What has every mystic come along and said? 
for, for, for as long as we can remember and have recorded history. It's, we're a family, and we now know that scientifically. We come from the same two parents genetically in sub-Saharan Africa, and that's what the mystic reminds us, and that's what we forgot when agriculture came along. Now, I essentially think that if you believe in God or whatever the creative intelligence is, that it's, it's, it's of course, not all a downside because we got incredibly creative. That's where technology comes from, medicine comes from, the division of labor comes from. We got very creative, and we got very, very colorful, and that's all a good thing. If we can just remember now that we're a family, and I think we are, I think that's why these technologies are rising up that you mentioned. The time is here where we are seeing ourselves as connected. We are literally connected by this uh, web, um, this interconnecting energy called the Internet, and that that is pulling us together in vision as one civilization. And I think we're, I, I feel confident that we're going to get there. We're going to start to see each other as a family, as brothers and sisters, and that doesn't mean there are not going to be differences. There's going to be plenty of differences because some people have different gifts and stronger gifts in certain areas, and there will be more and there will be less, but there won't be people who can't get an operation. We won't, we'll stop commoditizing the human body. We'll stop commoditizing art to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. We'll, we'll, we'll literally share like a family would. Ah, he's the lazy one. Well, we're not going to let him starve tonight, the younger brother who's lazy. We're going to feed him, and we're going to show him that it's a much more uh, 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 beautiful way to live when you participate in society. But we're certainly going to feed him, and if he gets sick, we're going to give him medicine. And we don't behave that way right now. Let's talk about education, because clearly uh, education, as it is right now in, in our school system, is missing a lot of this. I mean, right now, education is sort of geared towards the standardized test, then the SAT, then college, then get a good job. And none of that dream is sort of coming true. I mean, student loan debt is now at a trillion dollars. More than 50% of the unemployed have college degrees. It's sort of like the dream of education hasn't really come true. And what's what's missing there? Uh, the true purpose of education is what's missing. Education comes from the Latin word educare, meaning to draw out. So the truest form of education is to draw out the uniqueness, the talent, the light, the intelligence of the individual student. Our education system drills in and is a part of that economy that I just talked about, which divides. Okay, kids, some of you are going to win and some of you are going to lose meaning some of you are going to get A's and go on to grad schools and get the good jobs, and many of you are going to lose. And that's a violent ideology that has us against each other and not for each other and with each other. It's the antithetical idea to that family that I talked about. So our education has developed. It's simply the soul of the society as it moves forward. And the soul of our society right now is geared toward this idea of winning and beating each other. And to the winner belongs the spoils. Competition is fine. It helps us bring out and cull excellence. But to the winner belongs the spoil is the tox, is the toxicity, uh, that has, uh, uh, really, uh, uh, us fighting each other. You know, when an athlete can make $250 million and then the person sweeping the stadium, uh, can't educate their children, there's a problem. And that is rampant in our society. And, so, and yet, you know, there is some, uh, degree of competition that's sort of healthy. It's a way to uh, better yourself or even from the inside out. And like you, you 
clearly found your your dream and your your passion when you were in your fifth year of college and you started to take uh, theater and and you got into comedy and clearly competitively you became the top of your field like your your movies are the best comedies ever so so clearly that drove you and you're thankful that it drove you that way but it's very different. Uh, there's a healthy side to competition that is a part of who we are. Certainly hardwired to see who's the fastest runner and then to marvel and to be in awe at that excellence. And maybe who's a good comedy director. Uh, but the word competition comes from the Latin word competere. It means to strive with. So Larry Bird and Magic Johnson strive with each other and they see who's excellent. John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg strive with each other as tennis players and they pull out the excellence of each other. Uh, uh, there's great comics like Jim Carrey pulling out the excellence of myself. Uh, but it's this idea to the winner belongs the spoils. So when, the, when in the Native American culture, when the guy, uh, the hunter was the fastest horse rider, they didn't give him everything. They didn't say, oh, you get everything, nobody else eats. They went, you're, you're incredibly fast on a horse. What's for supper? They, so we've added this, this, this component, this idea to the winner belongs to spoils. And, and, and that is a violent ideology. It almost reminds me of the whole four minute mile, uh, psychology. So once the four minute mile was broken in, in world record history, uh, suddenly everybody was running a four minute mile. Like everybody kind of like went as a pack and beat this record within a year or two. And it seems like the same thing happens across many fields, like art, science, and so on. That, that, that's, that, that is the healthy side of competition, where you see something, it dr sparks something in you that you feel you can dig deeper and, 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 and be more excellent yourself. That's very healthy. And, and I'm going to take an extreme segue and, and relate this to your concepts of entanglement uh, that you mentioned in both, both in the book and in the documentary, I Am. Do you want to maybe... Um, kind of describe what you were talking about there was the whole, uh, you know, your, your interest in quantum physics. Well, quantum physics is, is, is the look at the subatomic world that's the science of the small. And uh, the idea of entanglement is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. So if there are two particles that have ever been entangled, meaning that they, they're rotating around the same nuclei at any point, and then you separate them and it ends up to an infinite distance, that if you affect the rotation of one simultaneously, the rotation of the other is affected, meaning they're entangled. Now, how is that possible? That you've moved them across time across space you move them this infinite distance picture of I, I use an example in the book picture a bowling ball in la and a bowling ball in new york and then you move that bowling ball in la but the one in new york moves at exactly the same time it doesn't that's not possible because there's space there's distance that requires time to travel but at the quantum level at the r level of reality the, you know the ultimate reality is the small the reality of the small, everything is connected, and it's always connected. And, and when, what's fascinating to me is they still have not figured out how this happens. Like, uh, no, uh, yeah. there's theories, we get into like 18 different dimensions, but no one's really come up with an actual way to explain this. Uh, well, I can explain it, and you know whether or not it ever holds up. Who knows? But it's, and again, it's not my idea. It's the idea of others. It's, it's space is not empty. There is an energy field that is connecting 
all things at all times. So it's not empty. You just can't see it. Just like you can't see the cell phone energy in the room. You can't see the radio waves in the room. You can't see the energy between particles. So if you had connected that bowling ball and you put, like, let's say, a stiff board and you, and you pull those bowling balls 20 feet apart, but a stiff board is, is, is touching both of them, well, then obviously you push one, the other one's going to get pushed because there's a stiff board in between. That's the energy field that's in between. You well, know, I guess it's also related to the fact that we still can't explain, you know, 97% of the universe is made up of both dark matter and dark energy, which we have no clue what those things are other than their names. Yeah, yeah, they're just a dark, dark matter. I haven't studied enough because uh, I, the 70s may have been too hard on me uh, <laughs> to, to really sort of well, well, dive into dark matter. But I tell you, there are there there is some intelligence behind all of it and you can feel it and it does operate and work through certain principles that we think get are getting turned upside down but really when you look at the principle it's just getting simpler and simpler and simpler einstein felt the the more complex a discovery the more you were away from the truth of it the simpler the the, the refining of that principle or discovery then you are really on to something that's why well, you it, wanted to find the unified too, theory they've done tests on this entanglement to describe exactly the effect that you said, you know, they've started particles off at the same spot and split them and sent them going in different directions. And then what, by observing one, the action on the other would happen faster than the speed of light. And the interesting thing is that experiment is kind of a microcosm of what happened at the beginning of the universe. Of course, the Big Bang, all all particles, every particle inside all of us, is, were, they were all entangled and all split off at the beginning of time. So that is it's a, just an that interesting is a, thing to, to correspond with your theory that it's all connected in some way. Yes, that's a brilliant insight. That means that all particles have at one point been entangled because we are the living remnants of the Big Bang Theory. We are stardust. We are those particles, that one infinitely infinitesimally small point of energy or light that exploded. It's all in us. And we were all entangled at one point. And so once that entanglement is... It can't be broken. So, again, the mystic sums it up as you're all family. You're family with everything that's uh, alive in the universe, not just uh, on this planet, but everywhere. And uh, uh, that's the scientific way of saying it, is we were entangled at some point. Uh, it's a brilliant insight, and it's one we ought to take to heart. Uh, Tom, you made me feel smart right now. I'm, I'm pleased with myself. I'm, I'm proud. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Now, you've always you've always kind of had this inside you. Like you mentioned, you grew up in a charitable household. Uh, you know, your your dad was heavily involved in with, in charity and and so on. Your family was and still is. Uh, you mentioned in your book uh, after liar liar on I think it was opening weekend. You went to a monastery and literally whittled. <laughs> Like yeah. to kind of, kind of. I guess you were trying to almost reverse all the intensity of a movie release with something that would bring you back to childhood. Yeah, well said again. Uh, there's that intelligence coming out. Um, <laughs> Every uh, now and then, I have a flash of it. People are well surprised. said. Um, yeah, there's such a whirlwind that happens around movies. Um, it it almost feels like a an illness. I mean, if, it, you know, I've been to award shows where people are screaming at the top of their lungs. I think there's a healthy way to greet a celebrity like uh, Tom Hanks or a Jim Carrey. 
they're brilliant artists. And to be in awe of their art and their brilliance, I completely understand and respect. But the level of celebrity worship that we have and the screaming that you, I would experience at these premieres, certainly not for me, but for the stars around me, the Jennifer Anisons, the Jim Carrey's, the Robin Williams, etc., it almost feels like an illness. And I remember during Liar Liar, we just wanting to move away from that and move into something more real. And I had studied this monk named Thomas Merton, uh, who uh, really inspired me and found such a profound beauty in nature and in silence and in contemplation. And I went to his monastery, and it really was childlike. I, I whittled. I looked at the. I, I turned over turtles by the by the creek and looked at their looked at their bellies and counted rings and tree stumps and. And um, and and then the world's vision lost its power. You know, the the idea that you had to have a certain amount of box office to be successful, that success completely spun on its head. It was successful to be uh, appreciative of the breath that was in my lungs, uh, appreciative of that turtle, the beauty of the flower that was uh, blooming around me. And, and, yet, and it, yet it still, though, was 10 years. You're, you're going through this transformation, but it was still 10 years before you said, that's it. I'm not I am decreasing the amount of luxury I'm buying. In fact, I'm going to start giving it away. Uh, you went through the transformation. It, it took it took the massive success and then the concussion. Do you think you could have had this transformation? And this is sort of the elephant in the room. Do you think that you could have had this transformation without the extreme rise and then the extreme fall brought on by the by the concussion. Well, I I, I, I remember I had the extre- what you'd call an extreme transformation pre-concussion, which was I had changed my behavior in my life. The concussion gave me the wherewithal, the courage, uh, the prerogative to make a film about it and to talk to you about it. Um, but no, I think adversity and there is a part of the journey and and. Look, we all don't have to have concussions and near-death experiences. That's why people tell stories, so we can learn from those stories and learn from those experiences. And when their experience touches ours, many of us can can begin to make changes and to feel the power of a truth pre-concussion and pre-near-death experience. But sometimes, well, yes, it does take uh, crisis. Is you know is uh, is a very important. Uh, 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 thing that happens in the human experience and it leads to that word opportunity i wonder if it's sort of like cleaning a car in the sense that if a car gets so dirty and you can't see out the window you have that's when you have to clean it and most people avoid doing going to a car wash until it gets to that point where they can't see anymore and uh i wonder if 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 that's the equivalent like you get we 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 have this goal. We're on the highway. We have this goal. We've got to get there, and nothing will veer us unless we physically can't see anymore. And that's the the value of the crisis. It forces us to do this kind of inner cleansing. Yeah, I like I like that analogy. Um, I, I like the death to life analogy as well. You know, a, a leaf, a, a, a tree, um, and many flowers before they can uh, rebirth have to die, or parts of them have to die. And and so a, a tree goes through a sort of death when its leaves are, are gone, are lost, and it and, and 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 winter it hibernates, so to speak, for winter, and then it boom, it comes back. We as human beings often need to get our trees shaken, right? We don't willingly let go 
of our, our old dead skin. Oftentimes we got it, we have to get a slap in the face is what Oprah calls. First you get the universe comes and, you know, knocks, you know, like little gentle knocks. And then if you don't listen, it'll wrap you right in the head, which is what it did for me. Well, we, I, I, I like how, uh, and it, you know, this is from, I'm going to quote God in Evan Almighty, but I like how Morgan Freeman says, uh, towards the end of the movie, uh, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If he yeah. prayed for courage, does God give him courage or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? And I think our world today, you know, you mentioned that in the beginning of the documentary, I am, you were trying to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And it's almost like what is wrong with the world are all of these many opportunities to be courageous to, you know, to put it in God's words. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so therefore, it, there, is it really wrong? It's actually what's right with the world, because without those opportunities, without the, um, the, the, the person who's in need of an education, I don't get activated. But I, because I'm a teacher at, at my heart, their need it, it creates activation and life and a story starts to happen. So I wouldn't say there's, I wouldn't, I don't approach it anymore by what's wrong with the world. I see exactly what's right with it. And, and the world knows exactly what it needs. So it presents itself to us. It presents itself to us in sometimes very violent ways because it needs more love, right? We need to be more compassionate to each other. We need to reinvent education. That's why so much violence is right in the midst of education. We don't see it that way. We think there's a mental illness outside of us that's taking place by that one student at that one school when we're all participating in that mental illness. And so life's going to keep throwing these opportunities, as you said, to be patient, opportunity to be compassionate, to rethink the way we're doing things, the way we're relating to each other. And I think that's beautiful. As much well, pain I, I like as that causes. mental illness in I am as the, you know, sort of this idea that you take much more than you need, and that's a form of mental illness. And then you kind of compare that to, on the cellular level, to cancer, which are basically cells that are essentially, you know, actively trying to consume more than they need. Right. Taking everything and not realizing that they're destroying the body that is supporting their life. And that's why the poet has said, uh, I don't know if there's ever been a wise mega rich person because who could hoard all these resources and those resources could nourish a thousand lives. And but, but, when let's, but let's take a look at that. Like clearly, again, you don't want to like some people have made a lot of money and are rich and they're not going to give it away or they're going to give it away in their own, you know, ways. It's not like you're judging this because every we all have and to, to some extent, everybody in the United States has wealth compared to somebody in, I don't know, Zimbabwe or wherever. There's a difference between judging a person who's on a path. If someone came along and judged me while I was, you know, had, you know, millions accumulating, et cetera, I would have said, hey, dude, shut up. Like, <laughs> I'm working hard and I'm doing the best I can and I'm doing what I can to share. Now, I've woken up to a different place and I was allowed to go on my journey and I didn't have someone pointing the finger at me and I don't point the finger at anyone, uh, uh, wealthy because like you said there's various layers of wealth and what what we may consider even an impoverished person in this country could be incredibly wealthy across the world but what i do want to look at and assess 
is the value that is creating all this wealth, the value with which our society is moving forward, the values with which we're teaching our kids, and then what are the outcomes when so much wealth gets held up, right, when it gets held up. So, yeah, it's in a stock over here, or it's in a bank, or it's in a bond over there, but there's a person right there. There's a river that's dying, and all that it's all energy, and I do want to look at that. Again, without judgment, a fair and honest assessment of how can we work together in, 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 in a healthier way. And I don't think there's a rich person alive that doesn't want to look and see how they can contribute uh, to healing the world. That's what it, uh, Wealthy people are beautiful people. They're incredibly creative, smart, intelligent, just good folks, and they want the world to heal as well. So well, I want to have that conversation because there a is a example? tremendous... Well, we, we have the cure for hunger, my friend. We have it. We don't need it. And 17,000 kids will die today. We have the cure. We have the cure. So it's a matter of looking at this as a society and saying, why isn't it activated? Well, why, and, why and, isn't it? Because we're not seeing things as they are. We're not seeing those kids as our kids. We're not seeing, there's not a person, not one of those wealthy people that I described, or even someone of modest wealth that would let somebody starve in front of them. It's this distance, this feeling of disconnect. And we're participating in a philosophy that is creating this hunger. We're participating in this get what you can philosophy, which always has a consequence. If you read Emerson's essay, Compensation, for every plus, there is a minus, right? A, high, a rising tide does not raise all boats. That's a fallacy. Across the world, the boats are lowered, right? The rising tide here means a lower tide over there. And we're not seeing this compensation and our effect of, in, of intense accumulation. Just storage. If Americans got out of storage alone, storage, we could end, I believe it's two-thirds or three-quarters of world hunger. So just saving grandma's couch, and again, I'm as guilty as anyone, so this is not a finger point. I hope this is an assessment and a conversation, but saving grandma's couch, we could heal the world in terms of global hunger. I love how it gets back to storage and, you know, again, this, this thing that suddenly happened to us as a, as a species in 10,000 BC, which is that out of nowhere we started growing wheat uh, so we didn't have to, like, travel around so much and we started storing it. And everything bad kind of happened after that. Like, our diet was ruined, our, uh, you know, sense of kind of community with our, our tribesmen was ruined, our, our, our focus on specialization as opposed to generalization started, which continues to this day in our educational system. You know, all of these things that may be globalization and, as you say, compassion and relationships and so on, and service, will hopefully solve. Yeah, we've got to see it, though, and we don't see it. It's you know, very and, and it's easy. funny too. Uh, again, I'm going to quote uh, Evan Almighty, which I think is a great movie. But uh, the the arc, the acts of random kindness that right. uh, you know the character God talks about in the movie. If everybody basically, if all they did was that and and focus on doing that during the day, I think there would be a huge difference in society. Yes, yes, and, and it's the personal revolution being the true revolution. Uh, you know, Evan went, Evan went to change the world, that's sort of the thrust of the movie, and he was going to go to Congress and change the law, and what the journey showed him was that the change starts with me, with each act, with each thought, 
with each way that I move forward in the world, all the energy that I put out, it starts right here, and it doesn't have to be big. And you know, it's funny, the initial reaction when somebody does that, or like the initial reaction to Evan in that movie, is first one of selfishness, like why are you just thinking about your own needs? Until, you know, it, but really though, and I believe it was Gandhi who said this, you, you change the world by, by each person changing themselves. And I think too many people are, are think in terms of like the Occupy Wall Street, like we have to, uh, I don't know, invade Wall Street or whatever and then go to, go to war, which is again this angry negative thing as opposed to each person focusing on how they could be better and healthier on the inside. Yeah, I think the uh, the wars, uh, the external wars, are are sort of the accumulation of all the energy, uh, the violent energy that we put out uh, from a moment moment to moment, and and wars start with us. They start with us wanting to protect us and our things and me, 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 and then it just it globalizes, it scales up, and it becomes a one nation against another nation. So, uh, so- and and the, the power we give away because we think that the problems are outside of us is enormous, and people are beginning to wake up on mass to this idea that if you want to change the world, you change yourself. You start with yourself, and then you can't not become involved in larger issues. You can't not want to start to work for your township, for your community, uh, to, to create a better education system, etc. And so, so what if someone is just completely clueless, like they have never experienced otherwise, like they grew up in uh, a goal-driven family, they, they went through the educational system, they rose up in their companies, uh, how do they kind of switch mindsets? And, let, but let, and let's say, assume they are interested in switching mindsets, but they just don't know how. What's kind of the first step? And, and again, you say, you, you know, you, you say you're not going to give the 10 steps in life's operating manual, yeah, yeah. but you have given some steps here in this interview. Like, what would you say is the first step? Do the opposite. <laughs> That's what I would say. So if it's you live the life though, only for yourself. Know what the opposite is. Well, it, we have to define who this person is but to give them a step. But let's say you've lived only for yourself. Let's have a thought about how is my behavior, this business decision affecting Let's say my family. And then let me go even larger. How's it affecting my community? And, and if everyone, if it's not a win-win for everyone, you stop doing it. You, you stop doing it. Uh, so, uh, let's say you, 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 you have, uh, again, a, a large footprint in terms of, uh, of, uh, your, let's say your gas or your carbon footprint. You say, you know what, I'm going to do something really small. I'm going to buy a bike, and I'm going to ride a bike one day a week to work just to see how that is. Sounds like a super small thing to do, but imagine in L.A., for example, where we have uh, a real challenge in in terms of traffic and and the energy that, that, that locks the city up. Imagine if every fifth person did that. Suddenly things would move, and it'd be a city that worked better. It, that small act changed my life. I started commuting to work on a bicycle. I woke up to the joy and that playfulness again. I just started riding a bike. And you know, I didn't do it for exercise. I did it because it was fun. Um, the, the playfulness is an interesting thing. And I, I had this discussion uh, last week with Arianna Huffington, who was on the podcast. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this statistic that children laugh on average 300 times a day. Yeah. And, but adults laugh on average only five times a day. Yes. Somehow between yes. childhood and adulthood, 
we've like completely lost the ability to laugh. And laughter yes. is so important to to both outer and inner health. Like I mean, it's yes. it releases endorphins, it releases oxytocin. All these neurochemicals that are good for you come from what's called inner jogging, which is laughter. And yes. somehow we've forgotten that playfulness. Yeah, which is again why the mystic, why uh, the the moral leaders, Jesus even said. Unless you become like these little children, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that child knows something that we've forgotten. And it's all around the same idea, control, control, control. The child has very little control over their life, right? They, they're dependent in, in so many different ways. And, and, and we try to control everything. This is why children laugh. You know, I've done some base humor in my films. I've done, you know, uh, the fart joke, uh, uh, you know. Which the, is always the, funny, by the way. That well, is yes, automatically it, funny. It is if you if you retain have retained your childlikeness. But oftentimes, because we're trying to control, and what are the two periods of our life that we can't control? When we're infants, and then we have to go in diapers, and then when we're older. When we're old, old we oftentimes lose control. We have to go in diapers. And so so in between, we try to control, and so anything that reminds us of that time we're out of control, that childlikeness, we rail against, and we lose that joy. We lose that joy of just, that's funny, that's beautiful, and, and we stop smiling. It's all about getting serious, and I love this quote from Thomas Merton, what is serious to men is often very trivial in the eyes of God. But what in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. And I think we've forgotten the seriousness of the celebration, of the, the dance, of the joy, of the experience of being alive. We've forgotten that to become someone, you know, to, to, to achieve something. And there's no greater achievement than that smile you talked about that the kid experiences 300 times a day. It does bring to mind, though, that it's not just control, but also responsibility. So you mentioned young people and you mentioned old people. These are the two groups of society that have essentially the least responsibility for family, children, their own livelihoods. But it's at the age of 40, it turns out that people are least happy, you know, in various studies of positive psychology and stuff. At the age of 40, that's when that's the critical moment when someone has the hardest time being happy probably because of responsibilities as well so there's this hunger to to make money so that they they feel like they can play again once they make the money to 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 take care of their families i don't think it's responsibility that makes us unhappy i think responsibility can be a very motivating positive thing in our lives it's the fact that we believe we're in it by ourselves and we're on our own and that we have no help and that if I don't do it, it's not going to happen and you take that burden on. That's why, you know, the tribal culture is new and we have that saying that's rolled over to today. It takes a village to raise a family. It takes a village. We've forgotten that. Now it's up to mom or it's up to dad or it's up to mom and dad and just them and only them and they're not going to get any help from anybody. We're not in this together. All those things create, they're exactly who you're not. And and just the fact you have a family shows you who you are, which is I want to relate. That kind of burden is what we add to responsibility, and 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 what we add this isol when we add this isolation idea, that creates very very unhappy people. Yes. So, uh, Tom, the Life's Operating Manual is coming out in paperback in a week or so. Uh, you had the movie, the documentary, I Am. 
how else are you going to kind of, what's the next step? How else are you going to continue this uh, message to people that's very important? Well, it is, it, it's my life. You know, I want to be the message, as, as Gandhi said. I want my life to be the message. But practically, I'm, uh, I, I continue to teach, but I'm more than likely, uh, I was just offered a radio show with Sirius, uh, Sirius Radio. Uh, oh, great. I did a, I, I a, a six-week uh, uh, program for them. We all had a great time. They enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. And I'll be doing a show uh, on uh, Monday through Friday, Probably on Sirius XM Indy 104. I think it's going to be three in the afternoon here in LA, six o'clock East Coast time, and we're going to talk about this kind of stuff. We'll 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 refine it a little bit in terms of maybe we'll just talk about education one show. We'll 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 talk about uh, uh, maybe films in one show, art in one show, etc. Um, but always that's a lot some, of work every single day. Well, yeah, it, I, I, I think I'm going to enjoy it. I enjoy this conversation. I enjoy engaging with people. I enjoy dialogue. Um, and if I don't enjoy it, I won't continue to do it. So uh, uh, it is a lot. It's, you know, it's a good 300 hours a year. But, you know, I think Oprah found when she did her show for 25 years that the human library, that resource is inexhaustible. There's so many uh, powerful stories some can be cautionary tales, some can be inspiring, um, but we certainly need as a nation uh, and, and larger culture, the world, needs to have a conversation about what we can do different. And it's not about pointing fingers at each other like we see on television. Oh, those Republicans are so dumb, those Democrats are so naive. It's not about that. It, 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 it's, it's about the principles on which we can move forward as a society. And then if we see things differently, the machinations, it's, it's not going to be near as divisive as it is now. We've and, got to agree about, on the principle. And what about in terms of movie making? Is that, your, is that chapter closed for you at the moment? Uh, it may be. I, I, I dabbled back in for a little while, but uh, for whatever reasons, the doors didn't, didn't feel, uh, didn't stay open. Um, I can't tell you why. Uh, I've certainly, I've been making, you know, I've been investing in documentaries and involved in that world. But uh, narrative-wise, it doesn't seem to be my path right now. So, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Life's Operating Manual, I highly recommend it. But not only that, I feel it's a companion piece to your documentary, I Am, which I really encourage people to see. And then, and your book's coming out in paperback, so I encourage people to to get it and then I look forward to what's next I'm, I'm going to drive around in my car just so I can listen to you on Sirius uh, uh, when your show starts I, I, I would be honored brother call in sometime we'll engage in more dialogue the show is called One Big Couch okay excellent I like that name and, yeah. and thanks once again and enjoy alright brother thank you I appreciate the opportunity take care thank you peace bye 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 Tom Wow, what a great interview. So, James, what's your big takeaway from what Tom had to say? You know, Aaron, it's very interesting because, obviously, incredibly inspirational. It's It takes enormous guts to walk away from everything to – and, you know, I shouldn't even put it that way because I feel like Tom would say he walked away from nothing and got everything. Uh, you know, I think, I think to the core, he's – He's inspirational and I think, you know, truly walks the walk and talks the talk. And as many of our listeners know, you know, I've been through almost kind of at gunpoint a similar experience. I've, I've made a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money. 
I've been broke and had to kind of rise up from the ashes and, and came to many similar conclusions. Even as I made back the money, I, you know, was forced to keep my own discipline and focus on what was really important, which is, you know, again, health from the inside, physical, emotional, mental, and yes, spiritual health, that health, that focus on inner health brings inner wealth and that inner wealth spreads out to all the people around you. And I think personally, that's the best way to live your life. And it certainly seems like Tom has found the best way for him to live his life, and it's really impressive to see. Again, I encourage everybody to go out and buy uh, uh, Life's Operating Manual, or heck, steal it if you want, I don't know, but uh, but read it. And, um, you know, once again, this has, been a, this has been a great show. So send me uh, any questions at james at stansberryradio.com. The reason I'm asking for questions is we're about to launch another podcast, a daily podcast, separate from this one. It's going to be Ask Altucher, where I will answer a different question each episode. And uh, it could be about anything. be about stocks. It could be about startups. It could be about your marriage, your relationships, your kids, everything you're afraid of, your anxieties, hate, fear, stress, whatever you want. Ask me and I'll do my best to, to answer. I don't know if the answers will be correct or helpful at all, but at least it'll be entertaining for me. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us on the show. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.